Hello everybody, my name is Nkozi and welcome to the Two Sides of a Coin podcast. This week we're going to talk about a continuing franchise in Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And we're going to talk about what can sometimes happen when franchise go on a little bit too long. And by a little, I mean over 20 years too long. Also, we're going to talk about the first two episodes of Disney's new series, their new miniseries, Secret Invasion. So, we're going to dive into what I like about it, as well as what I don't like about it. Alright, let's get into it. It's hard to remember, but there was a time when Harrison Ford was not well known as an actor. He'd starred in a couple of movies early in his acting career, and you could say one of the biggest springboards in his career is that he took a much smaller movie, a smaller role playing Bob Falfa in a little movie called American Graffiti. Now, for those who don't know American Graffiti, that's fine. It was a movie in the 1970s. But the most important thing about American Graffiti is that the director of that movie was a not well-known actor at this point by the general public but a guy called George Lucas. And George Lucas, later on, when he went on to make another series, he thought, why don't I get one of the guys I was working with, American Graffiti, to be in that series? And the series George Lucas would go on to create, Star Wars, is one of the most successful film franchises of all time. Now, The interesting thing is when you have such a huge franchise that you're a part of, it can go one of two ways. You can either be only consumed by that franchise or you can branch out and you can create your own identity as an actor, become bigger than the big franchise you're a part of. And Harrison Ford definitely took that route because when the second Star Wars movie came out after that came a little movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark and in that he played Indiana Jones which became one of his most successful roles right up there with his turn as Han Solo after that Harrison Ford went on to have an amazing career spanning over 40 years in film and TV, but Indiana Jones has always been special to him because that was the series where he started it, he was the main lead, that's one of his biggest roles. But there's an interesting thing about Indiana Jones, and that is, it is a series that many people, myself included, feel it went on a little bit too long. I mean, to put it into perspective, Indiana Jones has been around for over 40 years, 41 years right now to be exact. Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in the early 1980s, and there have only been five movies in the franchise counting this current one, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Now, with all that history, all that time, we really need to think, is Indiana Jones even still relevant or should Harrison Ford even be playing this character? Because as I mentioned before, many people consider that it's a great trilogy of Indiana Jones movies if you end it at his third movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It had the word last in there for a reason. It was, for many people, considered a great end to the series. But you can't keep Harrison Ford down, especially when he loves a character. So he did another movie, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. And now, after about seven, eight years, or over a decade actually, because Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull came out in 2008, Now, in 2023, we have the next movie in the Indiana Jones franchise. 
And really, I want to focus on two questions with this review. Number one, is this a good movie? Should you go out there and should you watch it? And number two, does this seem like the actual end of the franchise? Is this movie setting up something where Indiana Jones is going to continue forward and Harrison Ford is going to have just another movie in the works? Or is this a nice send off for Indiana Jones and his character as a whole? So having said all that, let's get into it. Now, one of the first things you'll note, and this is really early on in Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is this movie has a long sequence where they use a de-aged Harrison Ford's face. Now, good thing is they are using Harrison Ford's voice. However, and I cannot stress this enough, de-aging software has gotten a lot better. I remember when they tried to do de-aging software in the last Tron movie. And that really did not work very well. I mean, it was, it looked rough. But recently they've been doing it more and more. They use de-aging software for facial recognition in terms of Captain Marvel. They used it full on to replace the face of an actor in the movie Rogue One. The problem with the aging software though is that it still crosses the uncanny valley. It is still so right there in your face, it's not subtle enough at this point to not come across as, hey, where's that person's face? Who's actually talking? So there is that with uh, de-aging software. But there's a, there's a solid, like in the first, 10 to 15 minutes of this movie, you're going to just see Harrison Ford's DH face doing a typical Indiana Jones adventure. And honestly, here's what I will say. The action is fine. It definitely comes across as classic Indiana Jones. But when you see just that software just playing across the person's face, because it's not Harrison Ford who's doing all the action bits, who's doing all the physical parts of it. It's obviously someone else. So when you see that, it just doesn't come across as a great experience just to start the movie. Now, I will say, because of the direction and the cinematography, they don't ever focus too much on the face. But... When the face is fully in frame and when that's the only thing you're looking at, it's noticeable. It is very, very noticeable. So let's get past that part. Now, once you get past it and you get to the real meat of who the current Indiana Jones is, Indiana Jones is a little bit of a sad guy in this movie. He is a sad, sad old man. Like, Indiana Jones has gone from charming sweet and smart to get off my lawn indiana jones and if you're not paying attention you may wonder why is that happening and the movie makes it very clear that indiana jones has had it rough over the past couple of years over the past decade in fact it makes it clear through several small instances and I love it when a movie does this. They show, not tell. Now, there are certain moments where they do tell you why he is this sad curmudgeon of a man. And I will give the movie credit for this. When they tell, it makes perfect sense why Indiana Jones would tell in that moment. And it definitely hits with a big dramatic moment. And I would say that's the first positive i will say about indiana jones and the dial of destiny harrison ford is playing 
Indiana Jones, if Indiana Jones did not have a great life after the last time you saw him, and it comes across as completely believable. This is a guy who's been beaten down by events that have happened in his life, and he's not happy about that. He's not in a great place, to be honest. So they do a lot of scenes where they show you this is the reason why he's not in a great place. This is the reason he's not in a great place. This is the reason he's not in a great place. And the moments where he does talk about why he's not in a great place, it only accentuates those reasons. So I love that. I also love that this Indiana Jones is not necessarily out there and doing this task because he is so in love with adventure. We're seeing an Indiana Jones that's like, I'm done. I have fully put that life behind me. But it's like one of those crime movies where it's like, the more I try and run away, the more they pull me back in. Which gets to the second positive of the movie, which is Phoebe Waller-Bridge. In this movie, she plays Helena Shaw. Now, Helena Shaw is Dr. Jones's goddaughter. Now, she really is the thing that gets this movie going to where it eventually goes. And the thing I really like about Phoebe Waller-Bridge and what Phoebe Waller-Bridge definitely showed me is that Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I know that she can play drama and I know that she can be hilarious from her show Fleabag, which if you have not seen Fleabag, you should really go watch Fleabag. It is amazing. The one thing that I wasn't sure about with Phoebe Waller-Bridge was action. Let's be honest. Not every actor can act in every kind of scene. Some people are leaned more towards dramas. Some people are better at action movies. Some people are better at comedies. And I'm happy to report Phoebe Waller-Bridge can do action. When the action really starts to get going, she holds up remarkably well. I wasn't sure if she would be able to, but she does. So I will give her the golf clap that she can absolutely pull off the action scenes. Now, when it comes to the comedy, obviously Phoebe Waller-Bridge has good comedic timing. And when it comes to the drama, she can be dramatic. She can make you feel for this character. Now, to talk about Helena Shaw's character a little bit more, one thing I also really like is that they don't make Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character the damsel in distress. They make her a character that has some actual depth. She's not one-dimensional. She is not the person who is looking for Indiana Jones to come save her. She is the person who is trying to complete her own goal. Indiana Jones is just kind of involved in it, which I find to be a great, great set piece in this movie. She is essentially the secondary protagonist and she is not driven by I need to do stuff for Indiana Jones throughout most of this movie. Most of this movie, she's just trying to complete her goal and Indiana Jones is trying to complete his own goal. So they team up together. However, they don't necessarily team up in the way that, oh, my goal is your goal. They are like, our goals align for now, but they don't align 100%. So in that way, it's a nice throwback to the first movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, with Indiana Jones and Maria Ravenwood, or Mariana Ravenwood, where their goals are aligned, but they do not have the same goal. So they work together to get their goals completed. However, they are not where it's 
one is the sidekick of the others. They are both strong-willed individuals who are trying to get done what they need to get done. Also, I do like that it is more of a family feeling between those two than anything else. It's like that time where if you have a family member who you do not talk with a lot and you have to spend a lot of time with them over a very short period where you have to catch up and you guys have to get back into a groove and learn things about each other because you are family and you do care about that other person. However, you guys haven't seen each other in years. So there is this learning curve that you have to go through. And I think they handle that learning curve pretty well in this movie. Now, my final big thing, well, not final big thing, but another person that comes in because any Indiana Jones movie is made just as much by the protagonist as it is the antagonist. And Mads Mikkelsen is the antagonist. He is played by Jürgen Voller who is a Nazi, obviously. Although, that's a funny thing when you think about the Indiana Jones movies. Only in really four of the movies are Nazis the main bad guy. If anybody remembers, you know, Temple of Doom was not about Nazis. Temple of Doom was about voodoo and Kali. So... While Nazis are a big part of Indiana Jones, the franchise as a whole, where it's, hey, help artifacts, punch Nazis, rinse and repeat, it's not always there. However, the thing that I think sets Mads Mikkelsen's character apart from every other Nazi are his motivations and how he plays Jürgen Voller. So I'm not going to go too much into it, but I will go into this. This is a guy in terms of Voller who believes in the ideals of the Nazi party, doesn't necessarily believe in the people of the Nazi party. And that's, I think, an incredibly interesting part about him as a character. He is not uh he is not a hitler fanboy he believes in the nazi party as a group but he is not necessarily a i believe in this guy i believe in the ideals set forth by it so i thought that was a really interesting idea that they planted in that character as a whole I also thought that it was really interesting that in this movie they mentioned a real-life thing, which is Operation Paperclip. Now, for those of you who don't know Operation Paperclip, it was a secret World War II operation where the United States and the CIA helped to transport former Nazi scientists and bring them into the United States for their expertise in certain sciences. For example, the space race. A lot of the early games that were done were headed up by some notable Nazi scientists. Like the Saturn rockets were had several people working on them that were former members of the Nazi party. They were brought over to the United States their identity was changed and they essentially became U.S. citizens. So it was really interesting to see that being interwoven into his character where the only reason this guy is here isn't because of the MacGuffin in this movie, which of course is the Dial of Destiny. We all know it's the Dial of Destiny, so that doesn't need to be hidden. The reason he is over here in the U.S. is partially because of that. It is also because 
the United States wanted him over here for his scientific expertise. So that is a really, it doesn't play a huge plot point, but it is a notable plot point that I did find interesting. Also, I'm just going to say it, Indiana Jones knows how to do Nazis. They know how to do Nazis. Indiana Jones movies, when they have Nazis in there, they're going to show you Nazis are not the good guys. They're the bad guys. And they're going to show you Nazis dying a whole bunch. So that has always been a staple of Indiana Jones movies where the only good Nazi is a dead Nazi. And once you put on that swastika, once you... Once you put on the regalia of the Nazi party or show that your alignment is with the Nazi party, guess what? You're gone. There ain't no coming back. You're dying in these movies. That's something that I think has been shown even from the very first movie and it continues on to now. We're going to kill Nazis and if you're not comfortable with that, I think you need to ask yourself why you're not comfortable with killing Nazis. So that's something maybe to take you to your therapist. This movie has a lot of side characters. So some of the people that come back is like Jonathan Reese Davis. He comes back as Sala, who's one of Indiana Jones's closest and oldest friends. You know, he was there from the very first movie. Uh, you also have a couple of other people in this movie that I want to give a special shout out. So you have uh, Etan Isidore. He plays Teddy. He's like Helena's young sidekick. I don't want to. I don't want to put him up there with the character of like Short Round from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Although you do kind of get a little bit of that vibe, I will say they go throughout this movie to write him as not a stereotype. They try their best to write him as an actual young character who has his own motivation to go along with what's happening. So that is a that's a little bit of an interesting a part of this movie the action scenes in this movie are suitably indiana jones like you get the car chases you get the hopping between cars you get the classic indiana jones punches every now and again along with shooting you get moments where he's going to use that whip and really going to do something cool with it now i will say he doesn't use it as much but he is old so they try and keep it believable, the things that he's doing, and not too believable. Like, I found there was a very funny uh, character in this movie who he's not funny in that he's ha-ha funny. The funny thing is he's this tall German guy who you may have the idea that, hey, maybe a young Indiana Jones would have been able to take this guy, but it would have been difficult. And in this movie... They have it where, nope, Indiana Jones can't take that guy. He's not there <laughs> to be taken. Every time Indiana Jones runs into him, he's like, oh, damn. And he quickly gets subdued by him. So I thought that was actually kind of funny. Now, a movie can't have all bright spots. So let's let's get into the negatives about this movie. So one of the negatives about this movie is that the CGI can be unstable at times. Now, this is after I've seen The Flash. So what I will say is, is the CGI as bad as The Flash was at times? No, I don't believe it's that. However, it wasn't always the best done CGI. You could tell when they definitely took maybe more time on certain shots and less time on others, which was fine. Indiana Jones is not the most CGI intensive movie 
out there. But there are times, like when Indiana Jones is riding on that horse, yeah, it looks it looks rough. It can look rough at times because you can clearly tell that it's not actually Indiana Jones riding on that horse. It's somebody else. So it's a little wonky. Not enough to take me out of the movie completely, but it is a little wonky. I will say another downside for me in this movie was the role from one actor and it's not the actor's fault i think the movie did a little bit too much to emphasize the role of this group instead of just you know moving along with the story and that is uh shanette renee wilson she plays a government agent in this movie now I was fine with her being in the movie. To me, the problem was they featured her a little bit too much for the amount of things that she was actually supposed to be doing. So she is a government agent. Essentially, she's kind of like Jurgen's handler. So I liked where they were doing with her character, I just felt that if they were going to have her character and give her as much screen time as they did, which isn't a lot of screen time, to be perfectly honest, she's in this movie for maybe 10 to 15 minutes, which is not a large amount of the movie. However, I felt that if they were going to have her in this movie for that time, they could have done a better job of accentuating that this character is a government agent and they know what they know especially with what happens to her towards the midpoint of the movie i think they could have handled that a lot better i'm not going to spoil it but it left the it left a bad taste in my mouth to say the least now that's not my biggest problem my biggest problem is with the MacGuffin of this movie itself, the Dial of Destiny. I love the idea of the Dial of Destiny. I actually somewhat like how they used it in this movie. The problem I have is what the implication is with the Dial of Destiny in regards to the protagonist, not the antagonist. The protagonist is set to be this super smart scientist. As I said, he was brought over in Operation Paperclip. He helped Americans get to the moon. So why is this character not accounting for things that he should account for in regard to to this MacGuffin and that's that's really the thing that ticks me off it's either he has a momentary like lapse in judgment or he is a complete idiot which they go out of their way that he's not an idiot he has several moments where he's catching on where he is like hey I'm not great at archaeology but I am pretty smart so if you walk me through things, I'm going to understand what's going on. Also, they have moments where he sees Indiana Jones and Miss Shaw do something and he's like, why are they doing that? Well, I got to follow him to make sure as to why they're doing this. So they have all these really smart moments with the character where he just catches on and he does his own thing. So the biggest blunder in the movie for him not to have thought of that before they even set off on their journey is to me a little laughable. Like it just left a bad taste in my mouth. Maybe I'm giving the bad guy too much character. I just really love when bad guys are competent. They don't need to be amazing. 
but they need to be competent. And I felt like they went through this whole movie showing that the bad guy is competent, showing that the bad guy is really competent. So for the fact that they did not at the end, you know, fully realize that competence and for him to say, no, this is this is what happens, I think is just it really left a bad taste in my mouth. So having said all that, what's my final view of the movie? Well, my final view of the movie is this. This is a fun and also a slightly melancholy take on Indiana Jones as a whole. Like I said, this Indiana Jones has been through some stuff. So even the best ending of this movie would have you be sad about Indiana Jones. I thought that actually was nice into showing that even with all the sadness that Indiana Jones goes through, that he can still find his spirit and move on and live his life in the present and not the past, which they make very clear with certain things they do in this movie. However, and not however, that's a full stop. The thing they need to do going forward is not do any more Indiana Jones movies with Harrison Ford as the lead. Because I think this movie has firmly shown, at least in my mind, that if you wanted to have an Indiana Jones movie, you could have an Indiana Jones movie. You just need to recast Indiana Jones. If you recast Indiana Jones, I think you could have just as much of an amazing, fun movie as you normally would. If you do not, then guess what? You are going to have a subpar showing. Because an old Indiana Jones movie is a very different feeling than a young Indiana Jones movie. A young Indiana Jones movie is one that ends on a good note. An old Indiana Jones movie is one that could only end on a bad note. So if Harrison Ford, if George Lucas, if Steven Spielberg, if all these guys really want this series to move on and still be successful years or decades later, they need to recast Harrison Ford. They need to do some new Indiana Jones movies and they need to treat Indiana Jones like they are James Bond. We need to see Indiana Jones be a symbol, not the same guy. So that's my thought on this, because honestly, this is a high home cooked meal. It has some really nice moments. Some of the things do bring it down, but this is a very enjoyable movie to go see in the theater. So I really suggest you go see it in the theaters. I think you're going to have a good time. Having said that, I would love to know what you guys think of this movie. Please let me know in the comments. Email me. Just tell me what you think. And also tell me if you want me to talk about this in terms of spoilers, because there are so many things I actually like about the end of this movie that I can't really talk about, even though we all know what the Dial of Destiny does. It's pretty obvious. They make it very easy in the trailers to figure out what it is, but I'm not going to spoil it here because I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen the movie yet and who may hear this. So... Let me know in the comments what you guys think and let me know if you guys want me to talk about the spoilers of this movie because I have some thoughts. But let's move on to our next topic. So an interesting thing about the Marvel TV series is, in my opinion, they've been a little bit more up and down than the movies have. And I know that's being a little controversial or maybe it isn't, but... I will say that Marvel is going through this period of time where they're putting out a ton of content. And even if they aren't putting out a ton of content, to a large number of people, I think they are suffering Marvel fatigue. They've been with the Marvel Cinematic Universe for over a decade now. So 
we're really starting to get to the point where I think plans need to be made if we're going to continue in this universe. So with all that happening in the background, we then get this anticipated series that was announced a couple years ago, which is Secret Invasion. Now, Secret Invasion is obviously based off of a comic book series in the same vein. And at their absolute base, they are similar, which is the scrolls have come in. They've landed on Earth. This is a species of shape-shifting people. And they are now taking the place of some of our heroes or villains. And people are not sure if a scroll is actually the person who they are talking to or if they're talking to the real person. When this came out in the comics, this was a very interesting idea. Now that we're seeing it on TV, I still think it's an interesting idea. I do think, however, that the pros outweigh the cons. That does not mean we don't talk about the cons. Also, we do need to understand what this series is and isn't. So let's let's go into it. So mostly this series is centered around Nick Fury, especially in the first two episodes. And the thing I like about the first two episodes is they are dealing with the aftermath of the snap, or as many people are calling it, the blip. And what I like about these blip stories is that they are talking about people who go through traumatic moments in their life and how it's having impact years after the event has happened. In this series, there are people who are actively questioning Nick Fury in ways that we would not question Nick Fury beforehand. They are saying he's lost a step. He's not the same guy that he was. Everybody thinks he's run away. He is no longer the guy that we knew from the Avengers or prior movies. He is this person who is just going through the motions and he's just old. He's an old man and that's in particular what he is. People are not afraid of Nick Fury as they were beforehand. So I like that part of the show that not the underestimating of Nick Fury. I think what I like about this show is we are dealing with everyone questioning, hey, Nick, who are you? And Nick Fury himself just saying, yeah, I, I am different. I am not the same person that I was. That does not mean I'm not still Nick Fury. It just means that I've had to go through some things. So I, I really like that about this show. Sam Jackson, of course, he's going to kill it nine times out of ten and he still does so. What I do think is also interesting, however, is the way this series is really being presented. It's only going to be eight episodes from my understanding. So it's not going to be a very long series, which is good because Marvel has had problems with long running series. You saw that with some of the Netflix series where people would say this series is about two to four episodes too long. And maybe if it was six to eight episodes, it would be better and tighter than 8 to 10. Already that talk is happening around Secret Invasion. There are people who are actively asking, is this show a little too long? Should it have been a movie instead of it being a TV series? Which I do find a little interesting. I don't think 8 episodes is a particularly long time, but I do understand that if your story doesn't support that, it can be very long. But what I do like about this series, outside of Sam Jackson and his acting, I love the fact that we are focusing in these first two episodes on the scrolls. I think they've been one of those 
boogeyman or just kind of left to the wayside elements of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, talking about a species where everyone can shapeshift. Every single person can shapeshift, and naturally they are stronger than the average person. That is terrifying to think of in terms of the actual MCU. So if they're in any numbers on the planet, that's a legitimate concern for everybody. Because even if most of them are peaceful and just want to live their lives, if a certain number of them are not peaceful, or if they're all not peaceful, it can get bad really quickly. So we're focusing a lot on the scrolls as i talked about beforehand with this show you have a uh, kingsley benadir he plays the main bad guy in this show whose name is gravik he is the lead scroll that you see he's the one who is driving the scrolls forward and pushing the scrolls against humanity now, the interesting thing that I really do like about that idea is they've already introduced that Gravik and Fury have history together. These two are not complete and utter strangers to one another. These two know each other. So I'm really interested to see what that relationship was like. Were they kind of pupil and teacher was there a much more family feeling to that was there not we're going to be i'm going to be really interested to see how that comes across also you have ben mendelson he comes back as talos and i really like ben mendelson i like his portrayal of talos as he is world weary he has had to deal with stuff during the blip because we now know he wasn't blipped away. He had to deal with a world that did not have Nick Fury because Nick Fury was the main, you could say, go-between between the Skrulls and humanity. So with Fury out of the picture, suddenly that throws that entire relationship into chaos. Decisions were made that he was not made aware of things were promised that he probably was not made aware of so we see these two they might be friends but they're not close friends they are not the best of friends they are both working actively towards the betterment of their own people fury for humanity and Talos for the scrolls. So I think they're going to bump heads a whole lot more where they talk about Fury is trying to protect humanity and Talos is trying to protect the scrolls, the people that he truly cares about. So we are definitely going to get more and I'm really excited for that. Uh Amelia Clark, her role has been revealed. Uh it's not really a secret because they revealed this in the first episode, but she is Gaia. And if that name sounds familiar, you recognize it because Gaia was the name of Talos's daughter in Captain Marvel. So we have familial connection between Ben Mendelsohn and Amelia Clark. We also have that Fury probably knows Gaia as well. So we're getting a lot of interesting dynamics that have come up throughout the first two episodes of this. Now, I've talked a good bit about the interesting things that I like about this. Let's talk about the things that I may not like about this. One is Colby Smulders' character, Maria Hill. Now, for those who haven't been on you know, social media or just watching the show, the thing they do in the first episode with her, I don't necessarily love, which is 
in the first episode, Kobe Smolder's character, Maria Hill, dies. And that is a huge blow to, I think, not only the show, but the character as a whole. Now, to be clear, this is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Maria Hill could die and a scroll could take her place and that could be the new Maria Hill. Or she could not be dead. She could simply be in a death-like state. We saw it as well with Nick Fury where he injected her with a toxin and that toxin slowed down his heart so that way he would look like he died on the table. So we could easily get one of those two scenarios happening in this show. I don't necessarily like how she went out, but already we know that Maria Hill is coming back. The only question is, how is Maria Hill coming back? So that I will keep to the side. The thing I also don't like about this show, funny enough, I don't like the action. I do not like the action in this show. If they try and do things with Samuel Jackson, Samuel Jackson is old. He cannot pull off the action sequences like he may have been able to do if he was 10, 20 years ago. So even watching Sam Jackson run is a problem because he runs like an old man. Let's be honest. He does not run great. So I think this series is at its weakest when there's action on screen. And this doesn't only apply to the old people in this show. Even when Gravik is out there and he shows his combat capability or Amelia Clark shows her combat capability, I think they are way more capable I do think that this series is at its best when people are just sitting down and they are talking about their ideals, about their motivations, about what they want in regards to their future goals. With Gravik, we understand his goals by the end of the second episode fairly well. Gravik wants a home for the Skrull people. He does not want his species to be just guest on another planet. He wants there to be a new place for scrolls in the universe. And it's also revealed that he's a guy that had to go through the scroll Cree war, where the scrolls have mostly been wiped out from the universe. There are very few survivors left that are free. So you understand where Gravik is like, hey, my most important goal is to scrolls. And if humans have to die for that to happen, so be it. Now, I was a little annoyed that nobody called him out on that double standard and said, hey, how is it any different what you're doing than what the Kree did to us? And that if you become that person, if somebody turns around and does the same thing to us, Who's the good guy and who's the bad guy in this situation? You aren't some, you are not this otherworldly being and you can't play God. And if you know that you're starting war, then you will be killing a whole lot of people. And many of them will be innocent and that blood will be on our hands. These are the starts of the conversations that we see in this series. That's always interesting. I really love those conversations and I feel like Marvel doesn't want to get too deep into those conversations. Now, we still have six episodes left to go, so maybe they do want to really get into the moral quandaries that are brought up with the scrolls. And I would love that. So I'm holding out hope for that, but I kind of feel like they don't. That's at least my opinion. So... I also love there was a great conversation between uh, Nick Fury and Talos where Talos was telling Fury what was what and they were having a real disagreement. I love that scene because Fury was like, hey, you want scrolls and humans 
to exist and coexist together, humans cannot even coexist with each other. And you want to bring scrolls to the mix. I don't know how that is viable here, which is a great point. That that's a, that's a great point to be honest. So, like I said, in the moments where people are talking, that's when this series—that's when this series is best. When it's just two people having a conversation, that's when this series really shines. Every other thing feels like it's just a little bit of a break and a stopgap between the actual important stuff, which are the conversations. This feels more like an ideological series than an action series. So I really hope they lean more into that than less. But this is a Marvel show, so they have to have some action at least a little bit every single episode. But we'll see what happens. Um, and yeah, that's that's really how I feel about Secret Invasion. It's really too early to tell if this is a terrible series or if this is an amazing series. I've seen people say this is the worst. This is one of the worst Marvel television series to date. I don't know how you can say that with two episodes. There have been plenty of Marvel TV series that have not looked great after the first two episodes but like i said i'm not sure how much this is about the fatigue of marvel or if this is about the quality of the show if i look at this objectively just the quality of the show it's a decent show it's not amazing it didn't blow the doors off that does not mean that it's not that does not mean it's not successful or that it's not interesting so i'm willing to see where this goes i really am and i'm more than willing to hear you guys out if you disagree if you're saying hey this show is not great here are the reasons why or this show is great here's the reasons why and yeah i'm i'm more than happy to hear you guys out you know, leave a comment, send an email any other way. And I would love to hear your thoughts about this. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me in several places. You can contact me on Twitter at Two Sides Coin. You can find us on Instagram at Two Sides of a Coin. That's T-W-O-S-I-D-E-Z of a coin all one word you can email us at two sides podcast at gmail.com and you can listen to the podcast on podbean on spotify and also on apple Podcasts. so we hope to really hear from you guys i love to hear and discuss anything you guys want to talk about and we'll talk to you later